Hello. This episode is sponsored by my friends at Kila, a comprehensive fundraising and donor management software that will help you expand your reach, increase your fundraising revenue, and foster a dedicated community of supporters. Now, several of my clients are currently using Kila, and they continue to be impressed with how easy it is to use, how affordable it is, and most importantly, the results that they see and the impact they're able to create. Now, Kila is hosting a free webinar led by me on June 6th, how to drive donations and get engagement using social media. It's totally free, and you can get all the details and sign up at www.jcsocialmarketing.com backslash Kila. That's jcsocialmarketing.com slash Kila. See you there. Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Welcome back to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell. And today, the question that we're going to answer is, is tech coming for your job? (laughs) What can AI do to really enhance impact and make what you do more effective, not just on the program side, but also on the marketing and fundraising side? And what do we need to know and what can we ignore? So I have the perfect guest to answer these questions and help us navigate this new, ever-changing landscape. It's Najid Kassam, um, the CEO and founder of Kila, which is a donor management and fundraising platform dedicated to empowering all nonprofits to reach their goals. That is just one tiny piece <laughs> of Najid's bio. He's also the former chair of the Make Poverty History campaign in Montreal. MC of Live Aid Montreal with my crush, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, founder of the nonprofit The Better Canada Initiative, mm-hmm. author of a book, High on Life, which I think is really cool, and a co-producer of the documentary Conversations for Change. He's also a World Economic Forum Global Shaper and a Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal Recipient by 21. Najid sits on a number of nonprofit boards and outside of work, this is my favorite part. Of this is my life, favorite right? part, by the way. It's my favorite part. Outside of work, he's married to the most amazing woman in the world, takes True. care of a rambunctious toddler. And as of this recording, child number two is due in August, July. July. And July. And has a lifelong obsession for tennis. Yes. He was once ma'am. ranked 1746 do do in the world as a junior. <laughs> That is so cool. Um, hello, Najid. Thank you. Happy so much to have for you. I'm surprised me. you have time to be on podcasts. I I like smart, interesting people, and I think you fall into that category. So, oh, thank you. Well, Please I really appreciate you being here. here. Of course. So, 
You also wrote in a blog post that you joke you're a recovering lawyer. So how'd you get started in nonprofit work and the work that you're doing now? Great question. So I've actually, I'm 37 almost, and I've been working in the nonprofit sector for 30 something years in some form or the other. So my relationship with the sector is a very personal one. And I'm, you know, happy to share it here. My family, um, for the last few generations has fled a few different places, a few different continents. Most recently, my grandparents and parents left East Africa during difficult political times and moved to the UK. Leaving everything you have behind, moving to a new place, a new home is something I've never done. So I can't obviously comment personally, but looking at watching, listening to the stories from my family and my parents and my grandparents, it was hard. It was mucky. It was gnarly, as we say out on the West Coast. And um, they would not be here. I would probably not be here in the way that I am being able to do the incredible work that I get a privilege to do had it not been for civil society, for nonprofits, for the sector that helped lift us up, our community, our religious community, scholarships, support that helped my parents and my grandparents. And so, you know, my parents taught us a few things when we were kids, get a great education. It can never be taken from you and give back to your communities. And that's kind of where my obsession and passion and engagement with the sector came. I've had the privilege of holding roles in the sector from fundraiser to executive director to board member to charity lawyer, the latter two of which I still do a lot of today. And so I just, this sector is part of who I am. It's part of the journey of my family over generations. And it's a it's a privilege to um, to spend my life both in terms of my time and, and my passion working in and around nonprofits. I love that. And you, yeah, you founded the Better Canada Initiative at 20 years old. Can no, I founded about- the end, end Poverty Now when I was 20. And I founded oh. the Better Canada Initiative when I was 28. I was older. Yeah. Okay. So honestly, it grew out of that work I did with the End Poverty Now campaign. I was a kid, but I saw an opportunity to help build communities in places that all around the world. And instead of giving handouts and doing things, uh, I thought, you know, I I was a student of international development and and politics. And, you know, our thesis as an organization was let's help infrastructure build. Let's help actually fund the infrastructure building uh, in different communities and so that they can lift themselves out of the challenges they're facing. So Mm -hmm. we actually funded the purchase of usually capital for infrastructure. So I remember there was a project we did in Rwanda where we helped the community buy beekeeping equipment so that widows who were marginalized could actually build small businesses, generate their own income and revenue, and be able to like kind of lift themselves out of poverty and, and, and other challenges they face in the community. We helped, you know, they were all capital focused, which was really different. It wasn't like we're building a well. It's like we actually went to communities, got them to propose to like they, they applied for capital and then we helped the infrastructure funding and, and then communities the idea was communities were able to thrive and grow and, and so that was me as a kid i was i spent probably as many hours in college studying as i did uh working on this organization so it was a real privilege and a pleasure to do that's incredible yeah, and i so. know that you founded kila which i think is really interesting and definitely applies to the overall topic today <clears throat> of how technology can assist and help nonprofits do mm-hmm. their job in a more effective and efficient way. So what was sort of the hole that you saw in the industry? And why did you decide to create this technology and create this company? Good question. It was mostly an accident. 
Um, it was a frust- I'm, as I'm many a, great things uh, are. <laughs> I, I'm I'm not a technologist. I, I'm not a software developer. I just see technology as a tool for capacity and change and opportunity. And I was sitting on the board of a nonprofit when I was in Toronto. I was just starting my legal career. I was frustrated with the technology offerings, which I'll talk about why in a second. But and I said, you know, those words that every stupid entrepreneur says. I could build that. <laughs> well, little I did I know. Better. Exactly, I could build that better. I could build that the way I wanted to. And it kind of started as a project, and then became the opportunities sort of just opened themselves up. And I, I, I took the, I had the courage to leave my corporate law, my corporate litigation job. And, and kind of do it full time. And now it's been a few years and, you know, we're really privileged to support so many incredible fundraisers and organizations across North America and the world. Um, Mm -hmm. why are we different? I think there's a lots of answers to that question, some of which are really relevant and the smart and the intelligent stuff we'll talk about today. But maybe most importantly, I don't think I could have said this then, but we wanted to be fundraiser as opposed to donor or organization centric. And people think, but why? You know, it's all about the donor. It is all about the donor in some ways, but the people who need, that we believe need the most support, the people that need the most time back, the people who, who can unlock the most out of communities and philanthropy and donors are actually the people doing the work. So, and I think this is what really makes Kila stand out. It's like, we are very fundraiser centric. Everything we do is about what is she doing as the fundraiser? What is he doing? What are they doing? Because ultimately, they're the ones using our tool. And we have tens of thousands of people, fundraisers, use our technology every day to make their jobs better, to make their lives better, and to ultimately empower the communities they work so hard to do. And so changing our landscape, our vantage point to make it all about the people doing the work was you know, I would argue revolutionary in the sector and something that we still were one of the only people, technology offerings in the entire nonprofit sector that really is obsessed with the fundraisers. I spend time talking to them. I spend time learning from them. I spend time listening to them. I spend time pushing them, trying to change their behavior, trying to ch- change our software. It's a really symbiotic relationship. And I think that makes us truly unique. And then we can talk about all the other stuff like the technology, yes. but that we'll get to. But that I think to me is... I think the 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 symbiotic the platform that we Love put it. them on to be great is what I, is what I live for. So I think that is incredibly refreshing to hear. You know, we have a symbiotic relationship. We can't exist without them. They can't. They absolutely. Their cl- the clients exist better and thrive because of us. And I, I think that's just such a great perspective to have. So. When we talk about smart technology, AI, generative AI, people, a lot of people have heard of ChatGPT. I know that I just went to two conferences in mm-hmm. the sector. I went to the nonprofit technology conference, spoke there in Denver, and the AFP ICON, the International Fundraising Conference in New Orleans. And certainly the topic on everyone's mind is generative AI and mm-hmm. language learning models and mm-hmm. Bard, ChatGPT, all of that. So mm-hmm. I think there are two, well, there's many different perspectives. One is we're scared because if we're copywriters, maybe we're scared that ChatGPT is going to write all of our fundraising appeals. And then other people are more excited about using it as a tool. So what are you seeing and what is some of the hysteria versus mm-hmm. some of the actual reality? This is my perspective as Najid, as the person who is a student of technology, who's a student of of society, ultimately, right? I, I studied politics for 
you know, my undergrad for graduate work. And there are trends you can see. I, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. All I do is recognize patterns. I'm not that yes. smart. Right. And I think every time something changes, a, a big kind of leap, right? There's going to be groups of people who are early adopters, overly excited ahead of the curve. And then there's going to be kind of a large group of not detractors, but the thing before Skeptics. detractors. Skeptics. It's a good term. Yeah. And then there are the long tail people who are going to come. But for some leaps, no matter what you do or what you say, people are going to have to come. And instead of using an example like the car or something stupid like that, <laughs> I'm actually going to use online donation forms because it's Ooh. really relevant. So, you know, the, the rise of online donation forms really started in the early 2000s with the early adopters kind of by like 06, 07, 08, depending on when you talk, depending on, you know, kind of who you ask. There was a lot of fundraisers. I was not one of them, thankfully, but there were a lot of fundraisers who said this is going to be a fad. The donations are never going to be made online. I mean, we, there, there's op-eds, there's conference speeches. We, we were there, wow. right? We were around. It happened. And if you don't, it's 20, 30, 40, sometimes 50% of organizations' sources of giving is, is online, depending on the organization, right? The average in the sector is, you know, kind of between 15 and 25. Can you imagine if the people who, who are still holding out to saying that there's no donation forms online? Like it doesn't, it's not, it's irrational. We, it's hard for us to conceive. And so to me, I use that as a leap moment in our, in our sector that Generative AI or the use of, of predictive analytics and intelligence as a whole, in my opinion, is going to be one of those things. It's going to be less obvious than those, but I do think it's going to be a leap that in 10 years, we're going to laugh and say, mm -hmm. how could you have not done that? Now, just like donation forms or early donation forms and today's donation forms are magnanimously different, right? Mm -hmm. How they work, how we use them, how we interact, all of that is totally different. I think the next five to 10 years is going to see some really big jumps. And maybe it's two years or one year, or I don't know the period of time, but I think we're very early in the journey of generative AI and even intelligence and predictive analytics as a whole in our mm -hmm. sector. And so the skeptics, the, the critics, the folks who are fearful, it's natural. It's probably good. There's a little bit of reluctance that's probably healthy. And I think as information is proliferated as people get a chance to learn as people get a chance to build really strong use cases and unlock opportunity it's going to be like a donation form which is a tool you know my belief is it's you know there's this stupid quote ai is not going to take your job someone using ai is going to take your job and I, but but i actually believe that i think that fundraisers especially and and, and i put fundraisers traditionally and then fundraising marketers in kind of one bucket in, in this, in just in this conversation, mm -hmm. you look at the data, they're high rate, higher rates of alcoholism. You look at toxicity, exhaustion, stress, burnout. I mean, I can keep naming these terrible things. Mm -hmm. If we can get a tool that even helps that with one, two, five, 15%, there's something to say about that. There's value to create. And, you know, ultimately it is my belief that the wave of it is going to be adopted more and more. And instead of being fearful of it, people are going to look up to the sky and say, how did I live without this? Right. And fundraisers and fundraising marketers are going to be very grateful for these kinds of advances in technology that ultimately make their jobs easier and make mm -hmm. them be able to focus on the things they care most about, which is building and creating community and engaging with the people who are giving because no technology can ever take that away from 
the process of giving. I don't know if that answers your question, but. No, that's, that's great. And I completely agree. I think that it's natural to be skeptical, like you said, mm-hmm. of something that, first of all, is getting so much hype mm-hmm. and so many headlines and people are <clears throat> just kind of frothing at the mouth and being crazy over. But I also think it's here and it's sort of like saying, I don't like the internet. I mean, okay, you don't like the internet, but it's here. And it's not good or bad necessarily. It's how you interpret it and it's how you use it. It's also and how we teach it. And I think this is what's how we really teach important. It. Talk more about Our, that. I am scared of things I don't understand. That's mm-hmm. I'm a human. My kids. I don't understand them. I'm scared of them, right? Um, <laughs> right. But anything new is inherently like at least, fear may be too strong a word, but certainly there's an element of feeling it out, getting used to it, getting comfortable with it. Yeah. I think as folks like yourself, Julian, I'm gonna throw this to you and have a responsibility to help proliferate the right kind of information to help mm-hmm. teach how we can use it to see to talk about the opportunities and the dangers to talk about the benefits and the drawbacks just like the internet or driving or anything has positives and negatives it's up to those of us who have voices in the space to say don't open yourself up to this without understanding right so exactly take the time to learn go to webinars someone there's going to be books that come out about it you know, listen to what people are saying, mitigate the risks. And I think if we can do that effectively as a sector, this is going to be game changing potentially. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I do think that, and thank you for saying that. I remember when Facebook fundraising mm-hmm. tools came out and people were all up in arms about it because you don't get the data, you don't get the emails, you don't get this. It's not perfect. And the way that I try to frame it was, well, there's never going to be a perfect tool Mm -hmm. and you cannot put all of your eggs in this basket. Mm -hmm. Like you shouldn't put all of your eggs in the direct mail basket, nor Mm -hmm. should you put it all in the social media fundraising basket or the email basket. Like there's a lot of baskets that we need to diversify Mm -hmm. our revenue through. So I think what you said is really important. We also need to make that kind of assessment for our own organization, Mm -hmm. whether we are ready to do this or not. So what Mm -hmm. I like to do with a new technology, I like to just experiment with it and look Mm -hmm. at it and see how other people are using it first. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of Instagram stories specifically when it came out and I thought, oh, this is really cool, but I don't want to look like an idiot. So I'm just Mm going to watch what everyone else does (laughs) and see how they use it. And then see how I can get more comfortable with it. I didn't just kind of jump right in. I wanted to really observe and kind of take notes. So as you see it, what are some of the biggest opportunities for AI and smart tech tools um, for the sector? You know, and I'm going to go beyond just generative AI for this because I yeah, think this sure. is a bigger, oh, absolutely. bigger question, right? You know, yeah. and, and I think- can be anything. The power of data is one thing that mm-hmm. is truly transformative. I think, mm-hmm. and and our organizations, even if you're a small organization that does $180,000 a year in total donations, or if you're a big one doing $180 million a year in total donations, the sheer amount of data that you collect that you may not even know is remarkable, right? You send an email, someone's clicking on it, someone's opening it, someone's responding to it, somebody's on a website, somebody's replying to a direct mail, someone's making a donation, someone mm-hmm. in all of those things, there are multiple pieces of data. And it's amazing. It's also and terrifying. It's trackable. Well, it's not like a billboard. People are like, let me buy a billboard. And I said, well, what 
kind of data are you collecting from that? Unless you have a specific phone number or a specific website, which no one ever does. Well, I, but I think it's more than just tracking the data. It's actually like, I think we did, we, we saw, I don't know if I read something or we did a study. It's like hundreds of thousands or millions of data points for even small to mid, just on aggregate. And what I, what I will say is no human, be- I'm not that smart. I have a lot of really smart people that work with me. Even they can't understand that much data. It's not possible. And so smart technology will take millions of data points and make them a little bit understandable for you. They'll help you to process them. They'll help you to model around them, to help you predict on them. They'll help you give you visibility into something that's like, you know, I saw this stupid commercial where someone was picking the sesame seeds off the burger bun. We can't do that with data like that. It was, it really struck me. I was like, that's what organizations try to do with their data sometimes. They do. And it's exhausting and it's unfair to ask them to be data driven and then not to use this kind of technology. So to me, it gives you eyes where you can't see as a human being. It builds models so that you don't have to. And it's not biblical. It's not saying this is what you should do. It's giving you guidance. It's giving you direction. It's giving you a first draft if we're talking about generative AI. It's not doing the work for you. It's simply giving you a little bit of a step stool to stand on so that you can do your work most effectively. And I think by changing the lens as this is going to take my job or I don't trust it to, I'm still a smart thinking human being. Let me see what it suggests or presents or how it splices and dices or whatever. And then actually think about it is really where the opportunities lie. And I'm not saying, and I'm a big believer in automation, but you can craft that automation. You can make sure that it's doing what you as the fundraiser wants it to do. And so smart technology, predictive analytics, generative AI, to me, it's just taking all this stuff that you've got and helping you understand it better so you can do your job. And it's making a better experience for your donors. Absolutely. But but I think for us at Kila, it's actually making the experience of being a fundraiser better. That's true. That's true. And because of all those things we just talked about. Yep. I think constantly about how we live our consumer life and then somehow the way we operate our nonprofits is completely separate from that. If you think about you're purchasing something on Amazon, you think it's not going to remember the last 9,000 things you've purchased, your size, the colors you like, the brands you like. Think about Netflix. Think about Amazon Prime. Think about Hulu, Disney+. Plus. It remembers things about you because it has those data points. And if you have online donors or any kind of donor, a recurring donor, any donor, you have those data points. So the fact that we don't remember things about our donors, or I'm thinking about an email that I received, several emails last December saying, oh, you know, if you haven't had a chance to make your donation this year, and I'm thinking you should know, you should know that. And why don't you know that? And it just frustrates me that we have these data points, but we don't use them. I think for so long, technology has made it prohibitively difficult for fundraisers Mm -hmm. who are uncomfortable. Like most of us, myself included, are not technologists. We're not native tech. You know, yeah, we have an iPhone, fine, or whatever, you know, but inherent comfort with that technology it is on the people building the technology to make it digestible and accessible for the people using it and that's why that fundraiser centricity that i was talking about is so important because 
if you do that, then it becomes less intimidating because you give them insight into how it was done or why it might be like that. You can say, this is why it could be wrong. Like there's, you know, if you give more visibility into how these things are being, how the sausage is being made, so to speak, mm-hmm. in this case, it can actually help fundraisers increase their trust and increase their understanding of how and what to do with it instead of looking for a silver bullet all the time. Because in life, one thing I've learned is there's no such thing as a free lunch and there's nothing, nothing's going to come easy. And so we shouldn't be looking to predictive analytics or AI as a way to like make things easy. They can make things easier. And there's a really important distinction between those two things. I totally agree. And people that are looking at something just um, like a language model, like chat GPT and saying, oh, this is going to write all the blog posts for the future. I really hope that's not true because what's going to happen is that there's going to be a lot of really crappy, you know, generic content online, Mm -hmm. like there is now, it's going to get worse. But I feel like it's an opportunity for nonprofits to kind of put their fingerprints on their Mm -hmm. content, Mm -hmm. and make it more unique and make it stand out. So using tools, I'm thinking like I used to use a thesaurus in college, you know, (laughs) like, it's a tool, it didn't write my paper for me. And there was no way that I, you know, there was no way that I would ever think that it would. But using these kinds of technologies as tools to better do what you're doing. So in Mm -hmm. terms of being data-driven, how can fundraisers be more data-driven? Like, what kind Mm -hmm. of data do you think is very important for us to look at? So being data-driven is like saying, is such a blanket term, right? Like, yeah. So, so, which is great. I think it's, it's something that should be part of our lexicon, but I think we got to be more specific. It's, you know, it's, it's how are we using data to inform our decisions? How are yes. we using it to support our assumptions or counteract those assumptions? How are we using it to inform our instincts? This is really interesting because there is a really strong relationship between data and instinct. Mm. I'll give you an example. And, and nobody says that. And I think, I don't know, I'm sure smarter people than I say that, by the way. But no, I, I don't hear that, that a data lot. Data and instincts. Because da- you know, instincts are how you react, process, respond to something that, t- to a situation or something you see or learn. But that doesn't come without a whole bunch of data points. When you walk into a room, okay, like the door is there. There are three people standing by the table. Those are all data points that are going to inform how you respond or react. We don't think of them as data points, but they are, right? And so the same thing with a fundraiser, you know, looking at someone's donation history, for example, or their cumulative giving in the past, or their donation patterns, or how they've interacted with different marketing or email marketing campaigns. Those are all things, data points that can help you as a fundraiser Think about how to most effectively engage that donor, for example. So it's a data, it's an instinct. I think Julia is going to respond to this. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that? Oh, I've known Julia for 40 years. Fine, but there are, it, there's actually another layer. I know that she looked at two emails last week that she's she, she attended more events this year than she ever has before. Like, you know, that her... I don't know. She moved to a new zip code that has a higher median income. There are all these data points that can inform what you choose to do. Your instinct on how to best engage a a donor or you in this case Mm -hmm. can be informed by all those data. That's a data-driven decision. It's not saying the data is telling me to do this. The data is informing me to engage Julia in potentially a certain way. And that sounds a lot less definitive, but I think that's how 
I want it. That's how I make decisions with data. And that's how I believe that fundraisers should be making decisions with data because it's not going to say, do this. It's going to say, here's a bunch of stuff you should consider and then make your decision as a, whether it's instinct or reason or whatever you want to call it. So digging deeper, you know, and Beth Cantor has a wonderful blog post that she posted several years ago called Say So What to Your Data Three Times. And she was specifically talking about social media, but I think it really is applicable. So Mm -hmm. she was saying, okay, so you have a viral video on YouTube. So what? Oh, okay. Well, it got more hits to our website. Okay. So what? Okay. Well, it resulted in more people signing up for an email newsletter. Like you have to dig deeper. Mm-hmm. And, and that goes back to it not being surface. a silver, it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to do exactly. anything for you. It's, it's going to give you, it's going to inform information, inform same root, right? It's going to inform you about how you can act or react or respond in a, in a more where there's a higher probability of being successful. And I'm using all these words that are like, oh, but is that really that valuable? It absolutely is it's just not going to do, it's not going to make your lunch for you. And I think that's just the reality of it. But you it's asked a really good question. Your lunch. I want can, that AI that's going to make my lunch for me. I want someone like to the microwave, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> microwave or when our kids are old enough. Oh, oh it's DoorDash. Sorry, forgot. Yeah, yeah it is DoorDash. <laughs> I think we spend too much money in this house on DoorDash, but that's okay. Oh my gosh. But what it's I like that, fun- making your life easier. A hundred percent. What You asked what, a really good question. What can fundraisers do? I think yes. might start, start learning the language, start getting comfortable with the lexicon, start getting comfortable with just seeing and interpreting those things every day in your work. So mm-hmm. I got to work on this really cool project a couple of years ago now called the Certified Data-Driven Fundraiser. So yeah. CDDF, it's like the website is datadrivenfundraiser.com. And what we said is like every fundraiser should be data-driven. So we worked with a bunch of experts in the space, you know, Michael Buckley, Regina Alhassan, Mina Das, Tim Locke. I mean, I could, I don't know them all, oh. but like, and they all built courses where you can watch them and get CFRE credits too. And it's like foundations of data literacy, prospect re- research and development, donor segmentation, you know, all these like, what do I need to be thinking about when I'm looking at data? What does even data look like? Where do I find it? How do I understand it? You know, basic, and I don't mean basic in a bad way, but foundational stuff that I believe that every fundraiser and every fundraising marketer should be thinking about. And so we made this course online. It's on demand. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it was all done as part of a project that was, you know, helping the sector become more fluent in data. And so whether it's that kind of work or, you know, when you're going to conferences, making sure you're like sitting there and being like, going to the sessions on what is da- all the foundational stuff. Cause I think fundraisers need to embrace the baselines and train themselves or, or go to people like yourself, Julia, to get that training so that they can then look critically at their data and make it a part of their lives because ultimately it's a habit. It's habitual. The more you do it, the more you're going to be comfortable. The more comfortable you are, the more value you're going to have. The more value, ultimately, the more dollars you're going to raise if you really want to be kind of mercenarial about it. That, that's the truth. It's very true. And I, I know that there's going to be some pushback from people that say, well, everything I do should be building relationships. But- the but, data but those you are not it, is going to help inform those relationships. 100%. And, and those are not mutually exclusive things. They're not I, mutually exclusive. And that's kind of my whole point. It's a tool. Just like you pull out a, it's like, you know, you pull out a pen from your pencil case, 
or your pen, your, you know, your, your briefcase, that's a tool too. And you just know how to use it now. And we learned that when we were five, this is another kind of tool that we can use to be more effective in our work. And it will make our relationship stronger, whether we like it or not, that's the truth. And it's about embracing that reality. And I'm not saying let it replace relationships. In fact, I'm saying, let it give you more time to spend on relationships. And that's my whole MO about, about this topic. And also because of the high turnover in the sector, I know, for instance, just giving, you know, Keila as an example, because I've seen the back end and I've seen the demo, there's so much information on the donor. So I remember when I was a development director, I'd have a phone call. I'd have to like be scrambling through notes or like some Excel Mm -hmm. spreadsheet that I had and figuring Mm -hmm. out the last conversation I had or where their kids were going to college or what the last donation was Mm -hmm. or uh, nightmare. Well, I still do Now you could just look at the dashboard and say, here are the last five events they went to. Here's what they're interested in. Here's the last conversation they had with a board member. Here's the last date they clicked on opening something in your marketing letter. Here's how long after that. They made a gift. Like it's all there, but that doesn't change the relationship we're going to build. No, but you're just better informed when you talk to them on the phone or meet them in person or send them an email. Well, like like you said, they should know at the end of the year whether I've made a donation or not. Oh my gosh! Like it's really not that difficult. No, and this was, by the way, an organization I was a monthly donor to, but that's fine. Um, (laughs) And by the way, I want to be clear. I don't know what your audience is, but if it's large or small or medium sized nonprofits. This is not something that I've learned comes with an organization size. There are organizations that I, I sit on the board of an org that raises a lot. And I'm talking hundreds plus million dollars a year. And they still do some of this stuff. And it's incredible. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I work with some small organizations that are so incredibly data driven. So don't think that the size of your organization is determinant of whether you can do this or not. It's about learning, open-mindedness and discipline. And it's about starting somewhere. Absolutely. You know, if you have an Excel spreadsheet, great. Just you've got to move over to something a little more advanced, but it's baby steps and do what works for you. But the key here is making your life easier when Mm -hmm. you get on that phone with that donor or say that donor calls you. And you can just pull something up really quickly and immediately get the landscape. You the context, in your right? Head. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't keep all of that in your head. And the other thing is what I love about, and I know we weren't going to turn this into a Kila commercial, but I want to <laughs> say one thing that I particularly love is that you can customize each email, but it's scalable. So you can say, hi, Julia, thank you so much for your $50 donation to Giving Tuesday. And here's your donor history receipt for all of Giving mm-hmm. Tuesday. Would you consider m- making another gift this year? So it really, it pulls it and I don't have to completely customize each email to each donor or even segment them mm-hmm. by what they gave. I can just pull in those fields. Mm-hmm. So it's scalable, but also that just makes people feel really heard and listened to. And, and here's I know the we're crazy so scared thing. about getting this wrong or like. But, okay. So let's, but. let's dig into that for just one second. Let's okay. say you get it wrong. Let's okay. say. What's you the worst up. that can happen? Nothing. I promise you nothing. If there's 2000 donors on your list and you do this and you get it more right for 1,950. And let's say you screw up 50 of them. Firstly, nobody's going to actually care. Whoops, they made a mistake. And then that's not going to change whether they make the gift or not. But even mm-hmm. if it does, the value you're going to create from all those other folks that are like, oh, these people actually take notice. Because by the way, we do take notice. But it's not scalable to say, 
what is the average? You're supposed to say thank you six to seven times for every gift you make. You can't do all of those personally. Maybe you can do one or two of them, but you can't do seven. So let technology kind of fill in a little bit of that gap because it does like the data shows it makes a difference when donors feel like they're heard and they are heard. They're going to be more engaged. And ultimately, that's what this is about, right? So I want to ask you, mm-hmm. what are your favorite chat GPT prompts? <laughs> or how have you how have you used it in the past few months? So if you have, or my, maybe you don't use it. Maybe you no, use I do else. use it a little. I do use it a little. My team is obsessive with it. Mm-hmm. They love it. I like the rewrites. Yes. I think it's really cool for rewrites. So, like, I actually people use it as a first draft. I think it's interesting as a second draft. Sometimes mm. I have used it to write bios on people. Yep, that makes sense hopefully not mentioning any world rankings. But other than that, I am very much in favor of it. I have used it to summarize. I'm a lawyer. And I think this is like another area where it's going to be incredibly transformative is, is taking decisions from courts, legislation, opinions, and summarizing them. And Mm -hmm. as you know, this is not a legal tech podcast. But I think as a lawyer who spent thousands of hours reading case law, rereading case law, reading case law that was related to case law, I think, you know, you're going to see like that ability to summarize something. And the more they, the algorithms do it, the better they're going to get at it. I think it'll transform litigation. And so for me, that's that those are some of the examples of what's really fun and really exciting and a little bit scary. I like to use it to write podcast show notes. Oh, cool. And just to have sort of a draft, like if you have a blank page and you're thinking, oh, Here's the questions I asked. Here's the bio. Here's the topic. And it does a really great job of kind of synthesizing it all together. I don't mm-hmm. think that it did a really good job writing fundraising appeal letters because that was the first thing I used it for. <laughs> I was like, we, oh. we, we tried it for sure. We tried it for I just sure. Wanted, I wanted to know what would happen. And it was all very generic and but not very sometimes, driven. Sometimes it's, yeah. I always find it's easier to edit than to write. So sometimes is, the very fact that it's there, skeleton. you're like, this is terrible, but I can rewrite it so much faster than the blank page. So that even in fundraising appeals, there's value yep. to it, right? Exactly. Um, so it can I also recognize and summarize yeah. tone, which is really Ooh. cool. Yeah. And like, there's some really cool stuff. So and we're just like, we're dipping our pinky toe in, in this. Right. We're going to, there's so much exciting stuff to come. Right. No, people, um, I know that. I have spoken to other content creators who are saying, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to use it to, you know, write my blog. And I thought, but then where's the fun in that? I love writing my blog. <laughs> I love doing my podcast. Mm-hmm. I think the blank page syndrome is where it's really going to be valuable. And Absolutely. also, I love that about the rewriting. I know Seth Godin imported all of his blogs. Okay. Every single one of his, you know, 10 billion blogs into ChatGPT and just had it like synthesize themes and yeah. like, just really interesting. <laughs> but that goes like to body, like put big data in there. Right. Exactly. Like it can see stuff because it can synthesize and it can, yeah. there's so much it can do to compress that. And that's something that I'm not smart enough to do that. Maybe, maybe there are people that are. It's really interesting. Well, where can um, people find more out about you, connect with you and kind of follow along? Where do you want us to connect? I mean, LinkedIn is the best place for me. Mm-hmm. I'm the only Najid in the world. So it's really easy. Spelled my way. My parents changed the spelling of my name. So it's like N-E-J-E-E-D. And if you look it up on LinkedIn, you will find me. 
Um, and if you want to learn more about Keela, it's K-E-E-L-A.com. And there's obviously my contact information there. And this is a journey. The sect- I think our sector is undergoing a, a phenomenal transformation where the stuff we're talking about today is going to become table stakes for 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 organizations, but more importantly for fundraisers. And so hearing from fundraisers, hearing from folks in the space, their fears, their excitements, their ideas are are really one of the things that keeps me going. So please, please do reach out, folks. Yay. And I should give a little plug for the webinar that I am doing with Keela on June 6th. It's totally free. You can learn more about that at jcsocialmarketing.com forward slash Keela, K-E-E-L-A. And I'm really excited about that. It's going to be all about converting social media, using your social media data to Mm -hmm. create even more impact and more engaged communities. So I'm just thrilled to have this partnership and good luck with the little one. Thank you. I'm very excited. It's the most important startup I have, right? My kids. So I'm very excited, Uh, a little bit nervous, like we were joking before the show Moving from zone defense to man to man defense with my <laughs> wife, with my wife and I, two kids, <laughs> ten times the work. But it'll be, I'm, I'm incredibly excited and just praying that the, the remaining few months of this pregnancy are healthy and my wife's not too grumpy. <laughs> oh, me too. And you know, give her a break. I had a summer pregnancy; it was terrible. <laughs> Thank you, Julia. Um, <laughs> Real pleasure to be on here. Thanks, thanks so much Najid. For me. Okay, my pleasure, everyone. Thanks so much for listening, and you can follow Najid on LinkedIn. Keela, K-E-E-L-A dot com. And, you know, check out my webinar. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thanks again, Najid. Thanks, Julia. Well, hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode, but until then... You can find me on Instagram at JuliaCampbell77. Keep changing the world, you nonprofit unicorn. Mm-hmm.